All right, guys, welcome to the Golf Podcast Live with Raf and Mike. This is episode 82. I'm Raphael Calamat. I'm in Toronto, Canada, alongside Michael Bleakley, who's in Palm Springs right now. You know, we've got a very special guest with us today. He's an author of 25 years with Sports Illustrated, executive editor at Fire Pit Collective, um, author of nine books, including Phil and Now, Live and Let Die. Uh, Alan Shipnuck, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. This is uh, your second time with us, and uh, we're honored to have you. And, and first off, I love the title. Uh, <laughs> it, it just reminds me of the old James Bond movie right away when I saw that. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a good book. So, so good choice. <laughs> yeah, it's funny yeah, to mention that. This is not a book about James Bond movie or the uh, Paul McCartney song, uh, Live and Let Die. This is a book about the battle of professional golf between the PGA Tour and the Live Golf League. Uh, wow. Can you give us some key points or highlights about this book for those who don't know anything about it? Yeah, well, geez, that's... Um... You know, this has just been the biggest story in golf, uh, I would say this century, you know, certainly non-Tiger mm -hmm. Woods division, but um, it's it's completely reshaped the golf landscape, uh, you know, PGA Tours, old, established, stodgy, traditional, Liv has come in as this, this massive disruption to a, a very staid sport. Um, the fact that it's, it's funded by the you know, the Saudi Arabian um, public investment fund has led Ooh. to a lot of complex questions about geopolitics, about the role of Saudi money in the global economy. Um, it certainly altered the careers of a lot of very important golfers and kind of cleaved the sport in half. Um, I, we're, it's in the process of trying to come back together. That remains very complex. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's a it's a big story with a lot of subplots, a lot of protagonists, um, and you know every important golfer the last thirty years has been sucked into this story. Whether it's Tiger or Phil, Brooks, Dustin, um, you know Bryson, you go on down the list. Then you have you have Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. They're part of the story. Jack Ooh. Nicholas comes in. You know he's he's there in the beginning. He's in he get. Um, of the birth of the PGA tour in 1968, which I, I trace in the book and Jack gets sucked into this story as well. It's just, it's kind of consumed everything in its path. And it's, uh, it's been an incredible challenge to, to report this book in real time and bring it all together in one place where, you know, this whole story kind of happened in the shadows. It was, it was all secret and every, every negotiation, every deal, every time the money moved around, um, it was never, there was never a press release. It was never a press conference. Like, so trying to reconstruct this this whole tale um, from start to finish was um, was fun and it, it was it was maddening and uh, I'm proud of the book. I, I think the whole story is here, but it, it it was it was like riding a bucking bronco putting this thing together. That's one thing that I find interesting with you know uh, with authors is like that drive to find the story and get it together and, and, and publish a book like it's an immense amount of work and research and verification and like where does that passion come from uh, internally just to, to do it because it's your ninth book so obviously you love doing it. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, the 
the media landscape has changed. You know, well, I used to go to a tournament for Sports Illustrated. I had the whole week to write one piece, you know, 3,000 words. It was immersive and rich and and deep. And now, you know, if I go to the Masters, I'm writing every day. I'm podcasting. I'm on social media. There's just tremendous demand uh, and everything's got to be fast. And you may not have the room or the time to um, to really stretch your legs like that. And so what's great about books is you have a limited amount of space. I didn't have a limited amount of time, but I had a full year. And so I could really dive deep into this whole story. And so that's, it's just a joy to still have that ability to tell these, these stories in their complexity and, and their richness. Um, in this particular case, I would, I've just been sort of sucked into this story like everybody else, you know, for, for some people, I think they didn't start paying attention to live golf until the excerpts came out from my Phil Mickelson biography. And, you know, he was very blunt about what was happening in behind the scenes. And I think that kind of kicked off the live year in, in some ways. And so, and then I, I went to the first tournament in London and I went to Phil's press conference and, you know, he'd been sent into exile by the comments in that book and the people around him were, were still pretty sour. So they, they sent in these security goons to kick me out of the press conference, even though I hadn't even asked a question, I was just standing there. And so then I was, I was, I, I went, I sort of sucked deeper into the story and I just felt like, you know, this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity because we're watching history unfold in real time and no one really understands what's happening behind the scenes. And so I just wanted to tackle this and try and bring it out all into the light for, for golf fans and stakeholders in the game. You know, how did we get to this incredibly complex and fraught moment in the sport? And uh, I just felt like it demanded someone to to dive in and, and really bring all new material and a fresh perspective to, because people in the, in the game have been following the story in bits and pieces, but we've never had the whole truth. And so that was kind of my mandate with this book was to, to understand it from both sides and and present it to fans. So they, they could, they could really uh, go into the rooms where it happened and be taken to places that weren't available to them. And, and they, they could assess how they really feel about this, the situation. Cause I, it's been very polarizing, right? People are pro live, mm-hmm. they're pro tour. And they had they had to stake out those positions very early on. It's just the world we live in now. And um, here, here's all the stuff you don't know, and you know, synthesize it and then and see where you come out on the other end. That's kind of what I felt my role was. Yeah, but you've done a great job of that. Raf, your microphone. Um. Oh, so let's talk about that relationship between you and Greg Norman. I know it's 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 a funny relationship because in the forward you talk about Greg Norman and the genesis of the this alternative golf tour, and um, he's been pretty bitter and angry. And uh, you know, Jacobson goes on record in your book by saying if Greg Norman hadn't choked in the '96 Masters. Uh, the live tour would never uh, come about, right? It's kind of kind of a funny uh, play on things, but uh, let's put this. Can you put it into context for people on why Greg Norman would be so bitter or angry, in your opinion? Not maybe not personally towards you. Maybe you could mention uh, one or two things, but in general, why he would start the tour and why he's so upset. I know you touch on the book it it on the book with um, when he had his first meeting back in 1994 or so, and he wanted to uh, do an alternative uh, tour with uh, 
uh, Rupert Murdoch's money and how that would take place. And Arnold Palmer talked about uh, not wanting to be part of that. And so everybody kind of followed suit. That's sort of the- uh, yeah. the Arnold way. snubbed him, just walked, yeah. pulled out, walked <laughs> but, out of the room. <laughs> yeah, no, it's let's, a great let's, moment. Let's talk, let's talk about relationships with Greg Norman and, and how that kind of figures into this equation. Yeah, I mean, that's how the book starts. It's the shark shootout in 1994, you know, Norman's tournament. And, you know, he, he, when he left Australia as a golfer, there was not a pathway to play in the United States. I mean, the PG tour was a closed shop and he went over to Europe to apprentice there, like a lot of Aussies had, and it was hard to get onto the PGA tour and he didn't feel welcome. The American pros went out of their way to make him feel unwelcome. And he became kindred spirits with Seve Ballesteros, who was battling the PGA Tour and the European Tour. People forget that the European Tour left Seve off a Ryder Cup because he didn't conform to their membership rules. And, you know, golf has always had this protectionist mindset. And Norman was the consummate outsider, you know, coming from a faraway land. And um, he's always felt that the game should be more global and that it, it sh- that the top players should have access to the biggest tournaments and that they should be on this grand stage as, as the game moves around the globe. And so he nursed that idea for a long time. Like you mentioned, he finally got Rupert Murdoch, um, a fellow Australian iconoclast to buy into it. And in 94, the end of 94, Norman was trying to launch this, this world tour, but his fatal mistake was he didn't get the buy-in from other top players. He kind of went about it unilaterally. So he has to call them together uh, at, at Sherwood country club and, you know, North of LA to try and sell them on this idea. And among those in the room, it's, is Arnold Palmer. He's, you know, he's 65 years old at that point, but he still turns up at a few events to kind of charm the galleries. And so he listens to Norman's whole spiel. And by the way, Tim Fincham, the newly installed, um, PG tour commissioner caught wind of this. And he sent a letter to his player saying it's us or them. And you can't play both tours. This is a competitor, you know, obviously that shades of what happens 30 years later with the Saudis and with, with Fincham's successor, Jay Monahan. And so um, Arnie listens to this, this whole spiel. And he's, he says, you know, he says, Greg, you ever heard of the big three? Which of course is a rhetorical question. Everyone knows who the big yeah. three is. And he's like, listen, we were approached many times to break away from the PGA tour and do our own thing. And the reason we didn't do it is because it would have been bad for the game and bad for the fellas, which is such a great quote. It's so folksy. It's like just perfect Arnie. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. walks out of the room and eventually every other player follows and Norman's dream is dead. They killed it right there on the spot. And he's humiliated and he's just left seething. Um, and then to make it worse, Tim Fincham comes in, steals his idea, creates the world golf championships. And there's another moment in the book where Norman confronts Fincham about it. And they're like nose to nose. F word gets dropped. Like it's very heated. And, you know, Fincham humiliated Norman and he marginalized him and he turned him into this pariah. This guy who's trying to destroy the PGA tour. And, and that shadowed Norman the rest of his life in golf. You know, he's always been this outsider and he nursed this grudge against the tour for 30 years. And finally the Saudis came in, they needed a figurehead. They needed someone to animate this idea and they were happy to fund it. And so, it, you know, I trace this, this intersection of Norman's need and, and all this Saudi money. And they were, they were both outsiders, right? They were both trying to break into the sport. And so it was kind of this perfect marriage. And um, so, yeah, on, um, and Jacobson's, you know, Peter Jacobson's quote is like, if Greg had won the masters, we never heard of live golf because, you know, Norman would have been fulfilled and he would have had this, 
this role as this grand old man of the game, but you know, you can never quite get there. You, all these tournaments he lost, all this emptiness inside of him. And so it's really an interesting thought exercise. If Greg Norman had, had, had not choked away the 96 masters, would live golf human mm-hmm. exist? And so it just tells you like, you have this huge powerful force in the sport and billions of dollars, but on some level it comes down to these, these personalities and these grudges and these vendettas. And it, it's fascinating tale how it, it's all unfolded. It's uh, it's driven Norman to uh, you know it's battled and probably kept him up at night for years. Uh, oh yeah, you know, uh, I mean I know if I choked at the Masters like that, I would have never slept again. But mm-hmm. um, and here we are, and, and he's willing to take on a controversial role head to head with the PGA Tour, um, and now with this agreement or this merger uh, coming down the pipeline, if it if it happens, we are sort of up in the air. Um, but wh- where do you think live stands in the future? Do you think um, it's going to help evolve golf um, in, into a new entity uh, or is it going to stale out and, um, and, and fizzle away? Like what happens if the merger doesn't go through and then do we just keep going down the same route? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on the future of golf and live? Yeah. I mean, lives already changed golf. If you look at the PGA tour, the, these elevated events they mm-hmm. created, to try and combat live where small fields, big money, all the top players are there. That's a fundamental change to its business model. And in 2024, those events are going to be no cut. That's another departure. And so, you know, the products are starting to mirror each other in, in certain ways already, uh, which, which is a big shift. And look at the Ryder cup. There's no doubt that live affected not only mm-hmm. the captaincies, you know, but also the composition of the teams and probably the outcome. So, yeah. There's people who hate live and they want to dismiss it, but it, it's already had a big effect on the sport. And for someone in my position, it's impossible to ignore. I mean, it's a powerful force. And so, um, you know, the so-called merger, it really wasn't between live golf and the PGA tour uh, live has kind of been That's this right. parallel um, organization. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a deal between the PGA tour the European tour and the public investment fund to come together and create this new entity and even if the deal goes through as is, live can endure. Um, you know, that's not going to be decided by Jay Monahan or, or Jimmy Dunn or Tiger Woods or Roy McIlroy. That's going to be decided by Yasir Al-Ramayan, mm-hmm. the guy who runs the public investment fund, and he's the patriarch of live. And if he wants it to keep it going, it's going to keep going. And even that's even if the Saudis go all in on investing in this this new this this new idea, this new vision of golf. But um, the framework agreement was aspirational. There was nothing binding. That was not a legal document. That was basically Ooh. pinky promises, like let's try and figure this out. And and to drop all people, the lawsuits, right? Yeah, I mean, really, the headline should have been "Lawsuits are over." That's the only <laughs> thing that that came out of it. And for the PT tour, that was a huge win. You know, yeah. they were get they were getting bled dry defending uh-huh. lawsuits. I mean, their legal fees were approaching nine figures, and so just wow. ending the lawsuits was a victory for the tour, but nothing in that document has a hammer. And so other sources of money have, have figured that out. So whether you're talking about private equity from New York, venture capitalists from Silicon Valley, or even there's Hollywood money now through this endeavor, this, this giant group that um, owns IMG and the William Morris agency, they've realized, Hey, we can get in on this deal too. And so they've been, they've been putting in bids and you know, the tour wants $2 billion of outside investment. So they can pay the players what they promised. 
and they they can kind of reinvent the product. And that money can come from the Saudis, can come from outside sources, or they can combine that. And that's really the unknown is how the deals are going to get constructed. There will be a deal because the PGA tour is out of money, you know, paying the elevated purses, paying the legal fees, like they had to dip deep into its reserves. And so the tour is going to reshape itself and it's going to take the money. It's just a question of who provides that money. And Ooh. if the Saudis walk away or they get cut out, then live goes back to being a fierce competitor for the PGA tour because they still have the checkbook. And now the guys that that run the public investment are pissed off because they've been aced out of this deal. So that's the that's what the tour is facing. If they can if they can hold this thing together with the Saudi involvement, they can definitely get two billion dollars. That money's on the table from any number of sources. But the Saudis' role in that and what that means for Live Golf and for the future of either a collaboration or if they're going to go back to being competitors, that's the unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan, I love the way you put this in the book. You said, live is about many things besides golf. Chief among them, money, power, and politics. But there is a darker, more elemental force at work, vengeance. I think that kind of encapsulates, you know, what this book is, is going to be about and how it kind of springs forward from there. There's a really great story uh, about being on the first tee at Bedminster. Maybe you could share that with us. It's... Um, the quote there says, can you believe this shit permigrant and what that has to do with Greg Norman and how he felt when um, he was on the tee with DeChambeau, Johnson, uh, Yasser and Trump and how, do you remember the story I'm talking about? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of the first live events um, in the summer 2022 and you, you have, you know, President Trump is is playing in the in the pro-am with Dustin Johnson, future Hall of Famer, Bryson DeChambeau, you know, US Open champ. And then Yasir al Rumayan gets in on the group and kind of joins them. And the amount of juice in, in that foursome is is pretty incredible. And um, so yeah, I mean, for Norman, that was the ultimate validation. You have, I mean, Yasir is a key guy in all of this, and he you know, he runs a public investment fund, which has a, a war chest of $700 billion. He's a chairman of Aramco, the state oil company, which is the most profitable company in the world. Like he is definitely the most powerful person in the world who's not a head of state. And then, then you have a recent U.S. president and, you know, now a, now a candidate to, to be back in the Oval Office. And like, it's all this nexus of, of, of golf. And, you know, Greg Norman standing there just like, I can't believe this came true. You know, he's nursed this idea forever and now it's come to life. And um, but you know, that, the element of vengeance, it's not just Norman. I mean, like Mickelson, you know, Phil Mickelson's had these vendettas against the tour for a long time and he was been perennially stymied. You know, he wanted to have a leadership position. He wanted to be this agent of change and Fincham and Jay Monahan have completely shut him down. So that, that was part of his motivation. Now, obviously the money's important too. No one's going to deny that, that these guys were chasing the money, but for Phil, it was, it was this sense of being vindicated, you know, as this as this transformative figure in the sport who changed the whole game. Like that was very intoxicating to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all the guys on live, of course they wanted the money. That's obvious, but you look at like Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia, like they had completely worn out their welcomes on the PGA tour. Like their mm-hmm. colleagues hated them and they were feuding with all the powers that be. And so for, did they want the money? Yes. But live was also this fresh start and a chance to, 
you know, have this last act of their career not be so potentially um, where they're, they're feuding with, with everyone on their workplace, you know, live was this much more player friendly environment. And a lot of guys could leave their baggage behind, at least theoretically. So um, it's definitely about more than money, but there's no doubt that factors into every decision. They're very uh, connected on the live tour. They, um, the, 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 there's a lot of camaraderie. Uh, it seems like out there from the, the events I've seen and uh, which probably little, you know, PGA tour, they're a bit more divided. They're competing against each other, but now they're kind of a small family. It seems like, and um, how that affects competition, you know, is, you know, we'll see how that unfolds. But one thing that I, I think is interesting about live is where the team aspect of it will go. Cause we're already hearing the range goats are receiving offers for purchase and, um, and, and you know, the, the team aspect. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot in the pod about it would be really cool for countries to have a home course and home stadium or, or cities and whatnot. So um, what, in your opinion, would you think uh, there's merit on the team side? Uh, do you see a future w- with the team golf? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably the minority here. You know, I follow live closely, of course, because I had to, and I I like the team aspect. I think it's just one one more layer to the competition that's kind of fun. Like you look at Singapore this year, you know, Taylor Gooch had a ten stroke lead heading into the final round, mm-hmm. and he was always going to win that tournament unless you know he fell and broke his leg. And but the team element became very compelling, and Gooch did did struggle a little bit in the final round. He wound up winning by three. And, you know, his teammates came out at, to mob him on the last green. Hey, you won. And Gooch didn't really celebrate. He felt bad because his mediocre play essentially cost his team the victory. They wound up uh-huh. finishing one stroke out um, in second place. And, like, that's, you know, the guy just won $4 million on his own ball, but he felt bad for letting down his teammates. Like, there has been a lot of buy-in from the players. And, you know, the event that was just played in Miami at Trump Doral, you know, there's Trump again. Um, it was like, really, if you get into it, it's it's fun to watch because you have individual matches, you have team matches and everything's happening all at once. And so I do like the team element. Um, you know, everyone's favorite event in golf is the Ryder Cup, you know, the President's Cup, the Solheim Cup, like those, those are fun to watch. Now, mm-hmm. Um, lives challenges that it's kind of has an individual component and they've grafted the team element. Like, I think they should go all in on the teams and they should, they should do every event like Miami. And that would really, that would really drive home. This is a different product and and, and people would be more invested. And frankly, that's what they wanted to do, but they, they realized it would be, it was such a radical departure from what anyone knew in professional golf that it would have been impossible to recruit the players so they kind of had to had to do both, but you know the executives I've talked to said, yeah, we, we want to go all in on the team for sure, and we'll see how how it evolves. But um, it's just one more thing to follow, to 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 write about, to consume, to bet on. Like I I do think it has a lot of possibilities. Um, it lives challenges getting people to tune in and to care, you know. But yeah, if if you do if you do watch this stuff, it it's. I, I, I think it's, it's a fun element to the competition. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm really excited that you brought up Miami because I missed Oral on the circuit. And ever since Trump kind of lost that event because he was supposed to get the uh, PGA championship, I believe there at some point. And, 
you know, after the insurrection, they, they dropped the event. And I guess that's where he kind of wanted to uh, get his vengeance as well. There's uh, there's the word again, vengeance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just to pivot a little bit, rumors of other players going to live. Do you have any insight for us? Is there any information? And can you confirm any any amounts of money these guys are getting? Like I, I've heard uh, upward of of a couple of hundred million dollars for certain players like Cam Smith. I don't even know how much he really got. The, the well, people he, talked about a hundred million dollars. Um, yeah. No, I mean, all the numbers in the book have been vetted by live executives um, and by okay. agents and even players. Like the numbers that are in the book are really solid. So Cam got a hundred, DJ got 150, Bryson Brooks got 130. You know, I think Sergio got 50. Uh, you go on down the list. I don't have the, I don't have it right in front of me, but I, I print all these in the book and that's real money, obviously. And yeah. <laughs> uh, there is, yeah. there is an interesting in the framework agreement originally said that players could not switch tours. The department right. of justice came and said that's anti-competitive. So, so now there is a lot of recruiting going on because no one knows what the future holds, but for some of these players, this is their last chance. You know, Patrick Cantley turned down $75 million from Live Golf. It's part of why he's so salty. Because um, then after the- Not wearing a cap. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way it's to like, describe he did it. He did it out of loyalty, <laughs> yeah. you know, and Jay Monahan very effectively demonized the Saudis, made their money dirty, turned it into this moralistic question. And so guys like Cantley were convinced to stay loyal to the tour. And now they're like, man, I, I could have had that money. And now we're all going to come back together and be friends again. And so there's this little right. window where season's over on live. Now we know that players are getting relegated. Some contracts aren't being renewed there. There are, there are spots open. So if you're a Cantlay and Ricky Fowler turned down $75 million, it's like, um, this might be your last chance for that kind of a payout mm -hmm. because we don't know yeah. what the future holds. And so um, there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of energy around that at the same time. Um, this the PGA tour has done a great job opening the spigot and funneling more money to these guys. And so oh. um, when, when they're playing for $8 million on the PGA tour and they're paying for 25 million on live, there was a strong incentive to go to live in addition yeah. to the signing bonuses. Now they're, they're playing for 20 on tour and they're handing out a hundred million dollars in pit money, which is just a slush fund to pay the players for their loyalty. Yeah. Uh, it's not as attractive to go to live because the money's gotten so much bigger on the PGA tour. So these are all the things you have to balance. Um, you see a guy like Taylor Gooch and, you know, the, the golf establishment has, has kind of circled the wagons and refused to give live world ranking points. Okay. So, you know, Gooch, he, he won the live has a season long points race. It's like their own FedEx cup. And he, he won that. I was worth $18 million. He clinched it by shooting 62, um, in the final round at Jeddah, which was the last of, of the, the events before Doral when guys were still playing on their own ball. And afterward, he said, you know, I, I think I'm one of the best players in the world. And he might actually be that. But if he doesn't right. play in the majors, how are we going to know? Right. So at this moment, there's still a risk to go to live golf because of the lack of world ranking points. And right. Um, so, it, you know, guys like like Phil, Bryson, Brooks, Cam Smith, even DJ, they're exempt into the majors because – of things they right. won, you know, their, their major championship victories give them a five-year window. So like Phil's good through 2026, 
um, oh. pricing through 2025. So they're in the majors already. The world ranking points doesn't really matter to them. But a guy mm-hmm. like Gooch, who's not in the majors, it's a big risk. So if, if you're a tour guy, you have to assess like, we don't know what's going to happen. Now, clearly, the majors have the ability to invite anybody, you know, the P, the Masters and the PGA Championship are invitationals. They can invite yes. whoever they want and mm-hmm. they have a history of doing that. So they can still invite a Gooch and they don't want him to slip through the cracks. The Opens, you know, you can go through qualifying. There's lots of avenues to get in. So these are just things you have to weigh if you're a player and right now in this moment. And if Phil Mickelson calls and says, we're going to have a spot on the high flyers, you know, I can probably get you 20 or 30 or 40 million up front. Um, do you take that or not? It really, it's very idiosyncratic about where you are in your career, uh, how much you value the majors, what your pathways to get into those fields are and, and this unknowing of, of what, how it's going to play out in, in, you know, the next couple of years. Well, if Phil needs a five handicap on the high flyers, uh, I'll take that 30 million and uh, he can send a jet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. So, uh, it's a very yeah. interesting moment in the game right now. And you know, what do you think? Because uh, PGA allows uh, the players to have three exemptions to go elsewhere. And so hypothetically, you know, go back a year and change if, Jay Monahan, they see Liv coming. Say Jay says, you know what? We'll allow six exemptions for you guys. Then you can go experiment and play on Liv. Do you think the that might have been a smoother uh, scenario in the sport, or would we, you know, still have mass disruption and, and the exodus of players to Liv? Yeah, that that wouldn't have worked because the whole Liv model is that every player comes to every tournament. You know, that's, yes, that's, that's one of right. the fundamental flaws in the PGA tour is that you don't know who's going to play at any given event. And they've got this bloated schedule of 48 uh-huh. events and half of them, most of the best players aren't there. And, you know, so Liv's whole thing is like, if you, if you come to our event or you, you click on the streaming, you know, you're going to get Brooks and Bryson and DJ and Phil and Cam and whomever. And so that would not have solved the problem. If, if, if there was, you could have constructed it where guys could have played 14 live events and still played 12 or 13 or 15 tour events. That would have been the best of both worlds, but Monahan didn't want to do that. It was sort of all or none. And um, he took a very hard stance against live and it was defensible in the moment. You know what he, he did not have the war chest that the public investment fund does. What he was counting on was Mm -hmm. the loyalty of his players the legacy aspect in the end, he probably overvalued that a little bit. Um, you know, that they were guys were willing to, to give up that, um, and take the money, but, uh, you know, and Monahan kind of tried everything he could. He tried again, he tried to turn it into a moral argument. You know, when have you ever had to apologize for being a PGA tour member? The problem with that is that a lot of these guys just think of themselves as golfers and not politicians. And they didn't want to wade into those. They just said, Hey, um, you know, Saudi money is here to stay in the sports world, whether it's F1, it's soccer, um, it's snooker, it's, it's uh, horse racing. Like all these organizations are, are conducting big events in Saudi Arabia. They've come to terms with it, you know, tennis, you name it. And so um, a lot of golfers just said, Hey, this is not our fight. You know, we're not politicians. We, 
definition of a of a professional golfer is you you play golf for money, and so these guys were offering more money, so it was an easy choice for them. So, mm-hmm. you know, Monahan kind of struck out on the legacy argument. He struck out on the moralistic argument, and he kind of came to the end of the road and said, "Okay, well, if the only way forward with us is compromise, and that that's how we got into this this framework agreement." But um, since announcing it, as we were talking about earlier, things the landscape has changed a little bit, and I think the tour is a little more confident and that they can, they can raise the money they need without the Saudis. So that's why the negotiations have gotten so complex. Mm. Well, Alan, it's, it's been great talking to you. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Alan Shipnuck, author of the new book called Live and Let Die. It's available on all major platforms, uh, including Amazon. Uh, Alan, I got to tell you, if, if uh, Yasser wasn't a golfer, none of this would be happening. I think he's re- really the reason behind all this money. For, I think you, uh, you put the analogy, if he was into volleyball, they wouldn't yes, have like volleyball stadiums in, yeah. in Saudi Arabia. And we wouldn't have this growth in the game because it did. It has grown a game, whether we like it or not, whether we uh, agree with it. All this influx of money has disrupted the game, made it more interesting, caused a pile of headlines, COVID happened, tons of people, just the timing of everything coming together has grown this sport exponentially uh, more than uh, almost as much as when Tiger came into the sport in 1996 up to 2001 and the growth we saw in the game back then. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to, uh, to finish this book because I haven't finished it, but I've, I've read quite a bit of it. Thanks for sending it to us. Um, uh, tell us where we could uh, listen to you and where we could uh, follow you. Yeah. And it, by the way, that volleyball thing, that was from Keith Pelle, the CEO of the European Tour, who's been in the middle oh, right. of all this. And he, you know, he really laid it out. I mean, in some ways, uh, golf is lucky that Yasir does does love the sport so much because there's probably easier ways to make money for him, but he does believe in golf and it's certainly brought a a ton of energy to the sport, good and bad. And undeniably the players are making double and triple what they ever dreamed they could make. And so it it has been an an interesting period in this, in the game. It's largely because of one guy. Um, but yeah, so yeah, all my writing, my my podcasting, video storytelling, you can, it's all through um, through the firepitcollective.com and, you know, it's independent media company that um, I helped launch with uh, my longtime friend and, and uh, colleague, Matt Janella. And that's where we, you know, we kind of like to tell stories our own way and do, do unexpected things. And we have sort of autonomy and uh, we try and be independent voices and, you know, a very polarized golf media landscape so it's it's a fun challenge but uh i'm definitely i spend too much time on twitter you know at alan shipnick and um <laughs> that's messy fun um yeah. so I'm, I'm out there you can you can find me you are active we see you out there uh yeah. battling uh you know the trolls on twitter yeah it's been um, a lot of time doing a great job battling yeah. the trolls but, where are you yeah. off to yeah. next uh, that's a good question. I'm going to cover the Sandbelt Invitational um, down in Australia. That's the term that Jeff Ogilvie founded. And I think it's one of the coolest events in golf. They play Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath, two of the best courses in the world. You get, it's four rounds and every round is a different, different Sandbelt course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Peninsula Kingswood, it's kind of this neoclassic. This is total golf porn. And then the fourth event, the fourth round moves 
it's been at Yara Yara, it's been at Metropolitan this year, it's at, at Victoria, you know, there's just so many, so much great golf down there. So mm-hmm. that's early December. That's probably my next big trip, but um, we're working on a few other projects that uh, are a little closer to home. So yeah, I'm, I'm always busy and that's how I like it. That's great. You guys are doing an amazing job with Fire Pit Collective. Uh, great content, good editorial. So keep it up. Uh, you look forward to seeing more information coming from you guys. And, and Jeff Ogilvy is part of that team with you. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. He's an investor in the company. And you know, yeah. he's, he's just always been one of the best voices in golf. And uh, so whenever we can get him on a podcast, he adds so much. And um, yeah, Jeff's just a really unique i mean just deep thinker and so yeah we love having him be a part of everything well when he has a glass of wine he even gets deeper yeah that's true yeah there's been a few (laughs) podcasts where he's pouring some good reds for sure yeah well that's great well we would love to have uh a a match with you guys some point in the future if you're if you're you know just for fun uh you know pod versus pod or something maybe uh see if bamberger wants to uh you know uh, beat raf and i up a little bit we, we could do a live we, we do a live cast on youtube absolutely yeah i thought yeah. i thought i was gonna get jeff as my partner i mean i'd rather have a u.s open champion but i could i can talk to matt or uh or bamberger we, that could be fun we need too. a fighting chance we can't uh, <laughs> you know have, have a major champion uh on yeah. your team we need, we need to i'm a five cap raf's a teaching pro so he's telling everyone how to do it not not doing it himself so um, <laughs> thanks mike i appreciate it yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, just um, being honest. Yeah, I, I would, I would definitely drag Jeff down. It might actually make it competitive. But no, I appreciate yeah. you guys having me. This, this was great fun, and uh, I accept your offer. We'll, we'll have to peg it one of these days. Uh, yeah, one um, day we'll, let's make it happen. All right, good uh, stuff. Well, fantastic, Alan. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to finishing the book. Yeah, because uh, so far it's uh, like I said, you know, reading it on my device was very captivating. So look forward <laughs> to smelling the paper. <laughs> yeah, I uh, appreciate that. Well, thanks again for the for uh, for the conversation, and uh, good luck to you guys. See you down the road. All right, take care. All right. Alan. Take care, Alan. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, excellent. Uh, thank you uh, for tuning in. Uh, and anyone who's still on, please smash subscribe. This will be available on the podcast platforms tomorrow. And, um, you know, for uh, Raf and Mike, uh, enjoy the day.